listening to Because You Watched with Charlie and Francesco. I'm Charlie. And I'm Francesco. This is a podcast where we take a film that enjoyed significant mainstream success and use them as a starting point to discuss lesser-known films that we think deserve to challenge Francesco in a waterfall. <laughs> They're gonna win. <laughs> Very lousy fight. <laughs> And you hate waterfalls. I love waterfalls, but they're pretty. Joining us this week is a returning guest, Siobhan Brown. How are you, Siobhan? I'm well. I've just moved into my new house. Oh. House. House. i got to put a house. It's a flat. Is the flat in a house? The flat is in a house, yes. Well, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's London. Um, so for the listeners who haven't listened to our Gone with the Wind episode, the very first episode we put out where Siobhan was on, do you want to give us a very brief introduction, who you are? I am a game designer, I am a playwright, and I am a nuisance. <laughs> and you're an actor. Uh, sometimes. I'll be acting again this month, actually. Yeah, we can plug that at the end. Yeah, go on. There you go. All right. Uh, so, this week, we will be discussing, in preparation for the release of Ryan Coogler's Black Panther Wakanda Forever, 2018's Black Panther Wakanda Now, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Go ahead, go ahead. Marvel movie blockbuster sensation Black Panther. Uh, anyway, the synopsis of Black Panther... King T'Challa returns home from America to the reclusive, technologically advanced African nation of Wakanda to serve as his country's new leader. However, T'Challa soon finds that he is challenged for the throne by factions within his own country as well as without. Ooh. Ooh. Does he return home from America? Yeah. Have you seen Captain America Civil War? Oh, so that's does that even happen in this movie? No. That's why I fucking hate Marvel. <laughs> uh, I have seen Civil War about like I, ages ago. I think yeah. it is just taking place like a week after. Yeah, like okay. right after. I, I get that sense. Like when you. You have seen Civil War. I have, but like when it came out. Did you remember Martin Freeman's character? No. <laughs> from Civil War. That's fair. That's no. very fair. Yeah. I remember uh, Spider Man was there. He was. Yeah. Not in Black Panther, though. Unfortunately. I don't think it's unfortunate at all. I think Tom Holland is busy enough. I just. I want, that gets boy. Enough work. I want that boy to chill. <laughs> Move on, Black Panther. <laughs> okay, so usually we ask thumbs up, thumbs down, good film, bad film. I think we all largely like this film. I'm going to ask, is this, in your opinion, the best film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe thus far? Oh, that's that's a real humdinger. I would have to say, I would say yes. I would say, I would say it is. I say it's the only film in the MCU that tries to do something in- interesting. So by default, probably the best one. As a fan of the MCU, I'd say it's between this and Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which I think is a wonderful film. Now, in terms of fun factor, I love Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Yeah, we all like this film. Why don't we start by, if we divorce it from any of the context or any of the hype or any of the discourse around it, just having recently rewatched the film, what is your favourite thing about it? Okoye. I am a huge fan of Danagarira. I only kept putting myself through The Walking Dead for Danagarira. And then I, I couldn't put myself through any more despite how much 
I love her. And she is such a, does the character such justice. Again, a lot of my points are by nature in comparison with the rest of the MCU. Which, which that's fine. You know, I, I, for, I don't yeah. think you can, yeah. when I said divorce it from like the discourse and the hype, I don't mean yeah. divorce it from mm-hmm. the fact that it is in many ways a sequel to yeah. lots of other films. Yeah, just full disclaimer, not a big fan of the MCU right here. However, I think Black Panther has, to a point, let's say until the third act, some genuine visual flair, just a lot of colors, a lot of very distinct costume designs. The performances are great. Just the amount of actors that this film involves and elevates is truly incredible. Again, I don't think this makes it my favorite film of all time, but in comparison to other MCU films, it's really, really good on all of these regards. I think my favorite thing about it is that this, whatever you think about the final act in terms of visuals, I think the screenplay is so tight. I think it may have the best screenplay of any superhero movie. And I know the bar might not be particularly high, but I think in terms of storytelling and efficiency of narrative, it is such an achievement. Yeah, I think I think that, that's really right. Between this and probably like the first Blade movie is some of the best actual screenwriting for a, for a, for a superhero film I have seen. It feels like such a no-brainer to make this movie, not least because of how well it ended up doing at the box office. I think it's the most successful film ever made with a black director? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I saw at least top 10 blockbusters by black directors. A lot of them are just F. Gary Gray and <laughs> Tim Story. <laughs> but, I di- but I digress. No, um, I, I think even the MCU films are always the most successful films of the respective year, then this would be a notch above others. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was extreme. It was definitely the, m- was it the most successful film of its year? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Mm. It, it cleared a billion. But what I was trying to say is that they've been trying to make a Black Panther movie for a very long time. You know, since since the 90s, I think Wesley Snipes was trying to get one made. And he eventually ended up making Blade instead because that was easier to get greenlit. But he originally wanted to do Black Panther. Do you remember the Fantastic Four movies? Uh, the Tim Story ones? Yeah. So the third one was going to introduce T'Challa. And do you know who's going to play him? Who? Jimon Honsu. I can see it. I can dig uh, it. That, that era... Mid-noughties. I, yeah, I think he could have done it pretty well. And then for a long time, Singleton was trying to get it made with Tyrese Gibson as T'Challa, which would have been an interesting choice. And a weird watch. Would have been a weird watch. Nothing against Tyrese. Good for you, Tyrese. Still working, still doing... Still got a job, but I don't I don't know who should have been T'Challa. You know what? Still better than the uh, Black Panther adaptation with Scarlett Johansson as T'Challa. <laughs> yeah, that was that was weird. That and then she, weird. The, but she was also Shang Chi halfway through it. <laughs> it was it was interesting. Like it's a choice. I'm not sure if it's canon or if it's more like Venom. <laughs> but anyway, this movie is wonderful. It's directed by Ryan Coogler, who is one of the very few directors working who I think has a healthy arc in terms of scale. That he goes from Fruitvale Station, which is an independent movie, to Creed, which is a mid-budget movie, to a blockbuster, which is kind of how it should go, rather than saying, oh, Chloe Zhao, you've made two independent movies that are very chill and very downcast. You're going to make Eternals. I just did not understand the choice. I was like, yeah, Chloe Zhao's a good director. Weird, weird choice for this. I don't really understand this movie at all. I guess it was the agenda to introduce landscape shots in Marvel films, <laughs> but keep the writing. Well, not even the same level, probably lower the level of the writing. Uh, but Ra- it's not, it's not, we're not talking about Eternals today. Rather than yeah. film every scene in like 
a cupboard in Atlanta, which is what some of the scenes in this film look like. Oh, yeah. I feel like the only, apparently the only shit that was shot on location was the South Korea parts. Which is wild to me. You could just go to Africa. Could just, what about the scenes in LA? I think, no, I think those are actually. Okay, I hope so, because if they traveled to South Korea, but they were like, no, LA is too far. (laughs) (laughs) I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I think they're shot on location. I don't know if they're shot in LA. Yeah. I think they might be a shot in Atlanta, which, you know, doesn't look a million miles away if you get, like, the right neighbourhood. I mean, what, what, what you see is a basketball court in yeah. a you know, so they, housing estate. <laughs> to be fair, they could have built it in Atlanta. I actually yeah. don't know. Bits in Korea were definitely shot on location. That's what I know. Which is weird because just do the British Museum. It's like the Museum of Great Britain. I, the, the, musician, uh, the Museum of Great Britain. I turned. I watched this film with my partner. I turned to them and I said, they couldn't say British Museum. That was full of stolen items. But they mean the British Museum. <laughs> But they have the British Museum in Moon Knight. Right? <laughs> it's like it's an odd choice. It is an odd choice. So I don't think it, I genuinely don't think it was a like sensitivity thing because they do like allude to all the things and you're clearly thinking of the British Museum. I think it is just we're shooting Atlanta, we're not going all the way to London. Yeah. So if we do the British Museum, we have to actually go to London. But it just felt so obvious that it... Maybe it's because we live in Britain that we're like, that should just be... That, that is just the British Museum. But it just looks so vague and generic. Yeah, it, the building looks odd. It's it's a weird shape, the building. <laughs> that scene is nearly perfect, except for, like, the set looking so bland. <laughs> uh, which brings us on to talking about... Our man, Michael B. Jordan, who is wonderful in this film. I think a lot of people were very surprised he didn't get a Best Supporting Actor nomination because, honestly, it is imbued with so much pathos and energy and it's he's just wonderful to watch. And even when, you know, he's doing stuff that's, you know, more stereotypically villainous, you're just like, I want to keep watching what this guy does. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of stereotypical villainy, when he lifts that woman up by the neck, somehow that line is still funny. I don't, it shouldn't be funny, but it is. What's the line again? Where he says, nah, we ain't doing that no more. Burn this shit. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's still funny. (laughs) My favourite Killmonger line is when he reveals who he is and he turns to Angela Bassett and goes, Hey, auntie. And it's like, ah, oh, you're possibly the most, like, sexually energetic man who ever lived. <laughs> it's like, everything you do is hot, and I... Well, is it not hot in the comics? Killmonger? Yeah. No. No. No, no. Basically, T'Challa is the only character... Uh, T'Challa and Shuri are the only characters who are basically how they are in the comics. Mm. Killmonger is very different and much more, like, animalistic in the comics. Do you know Umbaku? Do you know what his supervillain name is called in the comics? What is it? Man-Ape. And okay. he wears an ape pelt. Okay. Good idea not to keep that in the film. Well, <laughs> this, is what, this is what's interesting, is that they do. They give him, like, this amazing ape and gorilla imagery that is part of his style and is part of his culture of the mountain tribes. Mm-hmm. But it's not done in a sort of... It's not ex- it doesn't feel exploitative, it doesn't feel diminishing. It, it, it is empowering, the way that the Jabari use the gorilla. 
But also, like, I don't know, because I haven't read the comics, but there's the different tribes and each of them is based of a, of a different animal that is, you know, local to Central Africa. There's the Danekaluya tribe with rhinos. There's the other, you know, the panthers, obviously, for the Chala tribe. So, like, it, it, you know, it makes sense that there's a gorilla tribe as well. <laughs> yeah, I will say that the border tri- the head of the border tribe is played by Danny Sapani, who is one of my favourite actors, <laughs> and he hardly does anything He gets another goddamn thing to do. But if you've watched Penny Dreadful, he is wonderful in that as Sembene he's Timothy Dalton's manservant and he is just so good he's fantastic in that if I have a gripe about the world building in this movie it's that they never give like the capital city a name it's just Wakanda that's weird because it has a name it's not just Wakanda it's a city in Wakanda. It's a country, it's not a city-state. Yeah, which I guess, I've not read the comics, I didn't register because there are so many nations whose capital city has got the same name as the nation. Luxembourg, Luxembourg City, Mexico, Mexico City, you know, they should have Or even France and Ile-de-France. Yeah, which is the capital of France. No, it's, it's, the, it's, <laughs> it's the region that, that Paris, Paris is in. Oh yeah, 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 you're right. But yeah, it's... Is Wakabi in prison? I don't will, know. Will Wakabi be in prison in Black Pan? He's not, he's not in Wakanda forever. Oh, of course. Because he was he doing is. Nope. Because it, well then, he's in prison. <laughs> I'm, I'm, he's in prison for being part of a coup. So is Daniel Kaluuya also not coming back? He was at the premiere, so he's clearly like still like on board with the project. He's like, yeah, you're you're a bona fide movie star. You have an you have an Oscar. I'm not going to ask you to come in and be like the eighth build in my superhero <laughs> movie. <laughs> go and go and be a movie star. I'm not I'm, I'm not going to do this to you, Lupita. You stay. <laughs> Uh, Lupita, I mean, this cast is just wonderful, and Angela everyone, Bassett. Angela Bassett, Angela Bassett, my God, and then obviously like you know Chadwick Boseman, who like I mean, well, uh, er, there's nothing that hasn't already been said, yeah. but oh my God, it's yeah, that, I think he is able to sort of do that thing that is very difficult to do to to not be like an antihero or a hero that like jokes all the time and makes quips but just be really firm and have so much integrity, but still be really engaging. Yes. That's a hard fucking thing to do. Mm-hmm. I think it's also the the lack of quips is probably thanks to the writing, you know. Yeah, it is a film uh, that doesn't undermine its emotional moments with yeah. quips. And there are very marvelly moments, like the, what are those jokes? It's like, oh, it's a meme that was popular for three months in 2018, we need to put it in our movie. But other than that, there isn't very much referential humour or like Reddit memes, you know, compared to No Way Home, <laughs> for instance. No, it's, yeah. it's still over, still uh, over. The movie is, that movie is a mess, but this uh, isn't about No Way no, Home. No, it's not about Marvel. Yeah, Bozeman's great. Letitia Wright, I think she... I remember watching it and everyone just losing their mind about how charming she is in Black Panther. Again, I'm not just going to list all the actors, but I do just have to say everyone loves Winston Duke. Winston Duke's fantastic in this. Winston Duke, it, he, manages, he manages to state that character as such a huge arc because he's, he's such a jackass at the start of this movie. <laughs> What's so funny is that he turns up and says, I will not allow Wakanda to be ruled by a boy. And, and Chadwick Boseman is like 10 years older than Winston Duke. <laughs> <laughs> he's like 40 when he makes this movie. It's like, you didn't cast a young man. <laughs> like, the age gap between him and Shuri is colossal. It's figuratively a boy, you know. He's smaller, he's skinny, he's less hairy, I guess. He's, he's a boy at heart. <laughs> and he's nervous about talking to girls. Yeah. I had entirely forgotten that when the Jabari first appear in this, they, they when, when they come out uh, barking, that they're just sort of jiggling their tits <laughs> in time to their barks, which I had forgotten entirely. <laughs> I think M'Baku is the king of not reading the room. 
Because everyone is super psyched for T'Challa to finally be king. And he's like, no, nah, none of us want this. And he's like, everyone does. <laughs> You're wrong. No, this everyone's on board it's with this. Me. It's just you. I'm Manape. I should be king. <laughs> <laughs> me, who you haven't seen for many years because I've been in my mountain lair. I also enjoy that one of his big gripes is about Shuri being the one to lead their technology. And I'm like, how technologically concerned is, is Zumbaku? What kind of science is going on up there in the mountains? <laughs> then you see his place and you're like, no, this is... I can imagine, like, this is in the mountains. Yeah, the, this requires, like, some ingenuity. The, the science of interior design. <laughs> Home economics. <laughs> uh, he's, just, he's just very charming. Everyone's very charming in this film. John Carney is, for some reason, in, a, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this sort of activist legend from <laughs> apartheid South Africa is... Black Panther's dad. It's so weird. I think this is when like it really hits. Of like Marvel just gets everyone. Yeah, they, 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 they'll just send like a note telling you you're gonna be in a film. You're like, well, I suppose I am. And like even among actors in the in the in the circle, like you often hear stories like when someone gets hired for Marvel and they speak to fellow talent, they're like, yeah, take it. Like that. It's pretty much like it's an auto take because. Even if you play a secondary character, it just boosts your visibility so much. I think it's better for the long-term success of an actor if you are a supporting role in a Marvel movie than if you're a title role. A hundred percent. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll never escape that role. Yeah. It's much more of a conveyor belt if you're like Chris Evans, who is basically doing one character for 10 years of his life and presumably the most bankable years of his life. You don't get to take breaks to go and do other projects if you're, unless you're a supporting character. If you're, if you're a lead, you just have to keep doing this goddamn movies yeah whereas like Kaluuya being the prime example Michael B. Jordan he's kind of did a one and done and now he's directing his first movie I think is, is Creed 3 his first yeah yeah it first is. movie's directing looks sick by the way does look sick we talk like about the politics of this film yeah I think it's more nuanced than people gave it credit for at the time the discourse was that among some people and, and I understand this reaction especially when it first comes out and you're kind of hit with it, that being an activist and being a radical is too much. Or you can have these opinions, but you can't employ radical techniques to achieve them. And that being more of an, a gradualist and being more of a reformer is the way to go about it. So a lot of people painted this film as having a quite a centrist vibe. On reflection, I don't think that's entirely fair. Fair. What do you guys think? So I think in the case of Killmonger, it's not his views nor his methods that I have a problem with. To an extent, it's more his final goal. Because I'm with him 90% of the way of, of his plan, right? You know, oh, black people are being oppressed all over the world. I'm going to use this, you know, untapped treasure of wealth and use it to arm oppressed people all around, all around the world. Which I'm like, yeah, do that. But then the way he goes about it is destroying the history of a rich African country, collaborating with racist mercenaries. And it seems like his ultimate goal is not so much as to help oppressed people, but is to institute a different hierarchy, almost like a, a different type of authoritarian state where he puts himself at the top. So again, it's, it's kind of something that I think people are, and I was skeptical about it when I first saw the film because it happens so often in popular media that you have a guy who's like socially minded who's pro-collective action but then they're like 
And that's why I'm going to kill everyone and destroy the whole world. And it's like, no, it's, it's such a cop-out. However we kill Monger, he feels like a real person. It doesn't feel like some like cartoonish villain who's like, they just slapped a, um, I've got great ideas and I'm going to murder babies to achieve that. <laughs> well, well the, the reason I think it works and it doesn't fall down that trap for me is that the inclusion of Martin Freeman's character, who is also in this movie, we haven't even mentioned him, is that he's there to remind everyone, yeah, everything that Killmonger is doing is what he was trained to do by the CIA. Mm -hmm. The coup that he is enacting in Wakanda is the same coup that he was doing all over the world for America. We made him like this. And having someone in the CIA who can speak to that, despite being played by a British person, is I think what makes that character more nuanced. That Yes, he's a villain, but he's a villain because when Unjobu died, his father, played by Sterling K. Brown, he wasn't taken back to Wakanda. He was kept in America, where he fell down to be a victim of the military-industrial complex. Mm. Freeman's character, whose name I always forget. Everett K. Ross. Everett K. Ross. What a name. He even says, he's one of ours. Which I think is the key line to understanding this read of Killmonger. Which again, the first time I saw the film, I... And even, even upon rewatch, because, I don't know, I, I had problems with the inclusion of his character. Just because I felt like, why in a film which is, yes, about, like, you know, global politics of race, but also especially explicitly about colonialism in Africa, right? right? The whole theme that the only reason why Wakanda is wealthy is because it was hidden by the West and they couldn't colonize it. Like, why is the one heroic or friendly or positive white character a CIA agent of all things? But no, you're right, he does have a role which is to be critical of the CIA. He's not there to celebrate the CIA as the good guys or helping them. So yeah, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm still, I still think he should have had a smaller role, maybe, you know, maybe just in Korea or just at the beginning setting up the story. I still have problems with a CIA agent having the only like mainstay uh, white role in this film. But yeah. I yeah. do think that what it achieves by him coming all the way to Wakanda is that it's the first sacrifice they make of opening up Wakanda. Mm -hmm to outsiders and the arc of we are going to help the world more than we have been and the reason why Wakanda is so you know powerful and untouched is because they weren't helping other people because they were so scared of the outside world I think it's really smart that Wakanda's independence and Wakanda's prosperity comes at a cost on its soul it's the it's the isolation that it enforces in itself also, Francesco, if we didn't have Everett K. Ross going to Wakanda, we'd never have the hysterical scene where all the Jabari bark at him <laughs> and they stop speaking. Which <laughs> 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 I love. Yeah. No, I, I, lo I love the bit where he's... <laughs> where he's Again, he's flying a drone. Like, it's pretty, it's pretty pointed. <laughs> where Shuri tells him the way to activate, like, the I think sonic overload or something is that he has to do the Wakanda Forever hand movement. <laughs> and she's, like, really not fussed <laughs> Because he's like, oh, that's hard. It's so lame. Like, <laughs> you, you don't get to do it. <laughs> so the ending solution of him basically setting up a Wakanda uh, outreach center, which is, you know, it's good. It's better than what Killmonger was, was doing. But how, you know, is that going to solve broader societal problems? What's America's role in that? Because it's not only Wakanda's responsibility to fix, you know, no. racial discrimination and uh, African, you know, colonialism. It's also like the West's responsibility. It feels like it's putting more emphasis on to private wealth and individual contributions rather than, you know, the 
responsibilities of countries as a whole, which again, I, yeah. I, I, I disagree with that mm. characterization of it. I think I read that very much as a first step. And the yeah. reason why it's the first step is that it's where Njobu died and it's where Killmonger was abandoned. Oh, no, but that, I, I agree with that. And, I just, and, think, and that, I just the, think that because the sequel is probably going to abandon the oh, storyline, it's, it's going to be the first and last step. But it shows him, you know, he goes to the UN and says, we're going to be doing more. I, I get what I get what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that it's not just left as, yeah. as a thread. We have to remember that this is a film being made by an American American corporation. Yeah. There's only so much of the global justice talk that they can do without quite actively stepping on their own toes or feeling disingenuous. Yeah. Yeah. And already, you know, the last few Marvel movies haven't been released in China. Mm-hmm. So they're already dealing with a more limited yeah. <laughs> audience base. And somehow the movies are making more and more money. Yeah. So so I think within those restraints, it's a good film. But like, if I have to judge it holistically, like as a film, regardless of its context, then I have to cherry pick or like to nitpick, sorry. Yeah. yeah. I think you mentioned earlier the weakest part of the film is arguably the final act. And the so the, I meant visually weakest. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think also in like it's just mm. it's a bit anticlimactic the way that it all goes down. I think the train scene was primarily done through reshoots. That's why the visual effects just look very ropey compared to the yeah, rest of the movie. It's, it's the visual effects in, in that last in that last sequence are, are, are so ropey. And don't get me wrong, I I love the Battle of Rhino as much as the next man. Uh, I was thinking all the stuff around the train. Oh, the train stuff is is not the best. I, I think when the suits are so clearly CGI, they just look very rubbery. Mm. In, in the same way, they look terrible. He's cool in Civil War, but like the suit looks terrible because it's all CGI. Whereas in this, it looks so much better when it's just an actual suit with light bouncing off it and it's a part of the scene and part of the scenery rather than something that's sort of edited in in post and which is which it still is in most action scenes but it's there are moments where it's grounded in realism and a real suit that's been built and it's just you can tell the difference and it's so much lovelier there's even a joke early in the film where he's trying on new suits and his sister goes like oh well, do you want to put your mask on every single time you have to wear it here here's nanotechnology and i was like no put your fucking mask on put your suit on uh, <laughs> i get why they're doing it it's you know it's quicker it's cheaper it's you know it's but one it, less thing to worry about but jesus <laughs> i mean i mean the thread of nanotechnology not just in marvel but in science fiction in general it, i've never seen it done well. I've never seen it done in a visually non-ropey way. It always looks very video gamey, very rubbery. I'd settle for 10 seconds of them putting on a suit. That's basically my favourite part of any superhero movies when they're manually putting the stuff on. But I think the train scene is especially especially bad in the context of this film. Because like Marvel movies are infamous for setting action scenes in very like empty, grey, anonymous backgrounds. Cupboards in Atlanta. Uh, yeah, exactly. And you know, the Civil War being a great example of that. And and the choreography of the action being not that great. But this film up until that point has great action scenes. The, like, the waterfall the scenes are amazing. The casino fight yeah. is in Incredible. Yeah. And like the other thing is that, and I think there, there are some bits in the final sequence that do this, but I love action sequences, especially ones that deal with multiple characters who are involved, each having a moment that is not only cool, but very rooted in their character. Yeah. Is great. So the fact the Border Tribe have like their capes, but they're also force fields, that's like, yeah, of course that would be the case. And it adds to the world and adds to the narrative. The fact that the Dora Milaje act like a squad and they have techniques when they're fighting Kilmer. Manga. The fact that Shuri's fighting style is very tech-based, it's great. Like, all this stuff, it's it's really cool. So I think there are stuff to really like in that final act. I think that, yes, the Rhino's a bit lame. My main problem with it is the train stuff, because, well, another thing is just Killmonger and T'Challa's fighting styles are too similar. Yeah, I, 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 I see that. 
I really do see that. They, it doesn't feel... Because in a waterfall fight, it's, it's a very clear difference in how they fight. There's, there's a very clear difference in how Umbaku, how T'Challa, and how Killmonger fight. But in that last sequence, it could be anyone in those suits doing that. And they're wearing the same suit. And they're wearing the same suit. <laughs> well, they're both, yeah, they're both wearing Black Panther yeah. suits. But which is, just, which is why I think they included the suits that sort of disappearing, because like... You can't yeah. tell who's who. No, because, yeah, T'Challa disappears in a like, pur- purple haze, and uh, Killmonger disappears in a gold haze, so you, you can tell who's who thanks to that. It's like video game characters with, diff- with different skins, basically. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people talk about the fact that Marvel movies look so washed out, but the use of the colour purple in this film is really, really lovely to look at. It is so visually appealing on the ancestral plane. Yeah, oh, I love that. Good movie, watch it, if you. although you probably have. Yeah, you probably have. Yeah, and then, you know, Wakanda Forever is going to come out, depending on when this comes out, tomorrow or today. So let us, let us know what, let us know what that is in the comments of <laughs> this Spotify. You need a, mo- you need a moment, love. <laughs> All right. And <laughs> okay, let's talk availability. Uh, this movie is extremely available. You can stream it on Disney Plus. You can rent it on Rakuten TV, Amazon, Apple TV Plus, Google Play, Sky Store, Chili, Microsoft, and YouTube. And you can buy it on all of those channels. All right, now let's move on to our next film and our first alternative pick, Black Dynamite. All you suckers gather round. There's a brand new movie coming to town. So get on up and check the scene of the smoothest, baddest mother to ever hit the big screen. Main man, Black Dynamite. He's super cool and he no kung fu. Drives a $5,000 car and wears a $100 suit. You're so righteous. This is also true. And when it comes to the ladies, he's out of sight. Black Dynamite, a 2009 film directed by Scott Sanders. What's it about, Siobhan? This is the story of 1970s African-American action legend Black Dynamite. The man killed his brother, pumped heroin into local orphanages, and flooded the ghetto with adulterated malt liquor. Black Dynamite was the one hero willing to fight the man, all the way from the blood-soaked streets to the hallowed halls of the honky house. Very good, very good. I've now achieved my black flirtation dream. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I couldn't have done that without getting some letters in the mail. <laughs> so, so, come here we come. So before we get into quoting this film to no end and laughing for 20 minutes, let me just explain a bit of my uh, rationale in choosing it. First of all, I wanted to pick a film that was fun and action-driven because I don't want anyone accusing me of hating fun for this, like in Marvel. Uh, secondly... Um, First of all, no, no, no one's done that. that, that this is a youth people, thing. People do. People do. I don't like Marvel. Do you hate fun? Do you hate entertaining films? I just like Marvel. Uh, anyway. Um, secondly, Black Dynamite is a black hero. Functionally a superhero. <laughs> the, the context of the film and of physics. Um... But he is one who, as the film Black Dynamite is a parody of black exploitation cinema from the 1970s, one whose identity is very entrenched in black cinema history, as opposed to, you know, Marvel superhero films, which I think, you know, part of what made Black Panther so successful is that it was the first of its kind. So this is a film that is very entrenched in that history, uh, parodies and critiques that history, and yeah, it's just a fun movie. What do you guys think about it? I'd never seen this, but I knew that a lot of my friends thought it was amazing. I'm a big fan of films like Airplane and Naked Gun, and it kind of did that for me. But I'm also a fan of black exploitation. It was very rewarding to have those two things met, even though the black exploitation is fundamentally sort of 
already a bit of a pastiche of, of action movie and kung fu movies, so it's quite fun having like a pastiche of a pastiche and done so faithfully. I, 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 really, I really enjoyed it and it's clearly such like a loving homage to this sort of instrumental period of black cinema. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I should uh, probably specify that we should talk about it as a parody, not as a pastiche, uh, just because like parody is not a, you know, uh, negative term, it simply means that it's spoofing the source material but being critical of it or making fun of it, whereas the pastiche is more like uncritically celebrating it. Like maybe Tarantino movies are pastiches of black exploitation. I think there are times in the film where it is pastiche and times where it's a parody, I think. That's true. Black Dynamite is never not cool. He is never not He's always to be cool. idealized in the same way that someone like Sweet Sweet Back or Shafter. And I think that the fact that the premise of the standard black exploitation film remains somewhat intact it is why I think some parts are pastiche rather than parody, even though there's a good deal of parody in it. Yeah, but that's what I think makes it such a great parody. It's not mean, it's not looking down on the source material, it's not like, you know, it comes from a place of genuine reverence. It comes points. from a place of love. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was delighted to be asked to watch Black Dynamite again. <laughs> I, have, I have loved Black Dynamite since the first time I saw it. This is, to my mind, one of the funniest films ever made. Everything about it is, it's such a pitch perfect parody pastiche burlesque of black exploitation. It looks so much like a 1970s black exploitation. It does. Movie. It's like Garth Marenghi doing black exploitation. Like there's, there's a scene where the camera pans up and the boom mic is in the Or is that, there's, that, there's that scene where, where Bullhorn's fighting a guy and then he actually slaps him and he he's like, motherfucker, and then the scene cuts. And it's a different guy. <laughs> But the thing is that that is, it's a heightening, but that's in a lot of black exploitation because <laughs> they don't have the film stock to do huge amounts of takes, particularly in like independent black exploitation like Dolomite. Yeah. Yeah, this film's, Michael J. White is pitch perfect in how he's playing it. Like he's, he's never goofy and he's always like serious enough, but he's never not funny. Michael J. White is such a good black dynamite that when he voices Bronze Tiger, in DC animated movies, he's just doing Black Dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Bronze Tiger is kind of a black exploitation character. Yeah, Bronze Tiger kind of is a black exploitation character. Oh my god, it's too bad that it's DC because I would love to see a Bronze Tiger Black Panther across. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I'm sure there is an equivalent. I'm sure there's like a martial arts black character in some obscure Marvel issue. Marvel. And I, I should probably mention, without spoiling the scene, there is literally a scene where he's in a kung fu fight and he literally goes, Panther stands! <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's my Black Panther pick. <laughs> well, there are actual Black Panthers in this. There are Black Panthers in this movie. Played by Arsenio Hall. <laughs> moment to moment, everything's really funny and everything is just... I compared it to Airplane earlier and Airplane is like second to second joke, joke, joke. I like the Black Dynamite lets every joke build a bit more to like get you invested long enough so that when they do diffuse it, you're invested and it's a bit like, oh for fuck's sake. <laughs> I was, I, no, I thought we were actually doing it. Again, a joke that we will not spoil, but there is, there, there is one but moment that, of outrageous misogyny from Black Dynamite that is so stunning it makes everyone in the room go quiet despite there being many pimps in the film. And, <laughs> this yeah. and, and the punchline to that is, Black Dynamite, I feel like you're a guy I can trust. <laughs> After he, yeah. <laughs> oh, Speaking God. of which, Black Dynamite has a great relationship with the Council of Pimps. <laughs> to really be into him. The Council of Pimps feels like an old school Dave Chappelle sketch. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but it does, it does it, have it, the it, feeling of the hater's ball. The hater's ball. <laughs> one of the best Chappelle sketches. Yeah, it, and I love that one pimp that is like just so on board for everything Black Dynamite says. So and much like, so, the other pimps are like, what are you doing with that? Just, that? Like, no, no, this guy, no. I'm gonna kill everyone who sells drugs in the community. But, Black Dynamite, I sell drugs in the community. <laughs> <laughs> A line I've been saying to my friends for years. <laughs> The whole exchange. <laughs> you have to do the whole exchange to get the joke. No, no, no. Oh, God. Oh, but, my, it's great. In terms of the actual politics of this film, now, let, let's talk about those. Let's talk about the politics. They, they are silly and they are extremely heightened, but compared to something like, you know, like Panther, if you will, which is more like about diplomacy and reform, you know, regardless of whether you think it's a centrist film or not. This film is like, nah, if there's someone fucking up like neighborhoods in Chicago or in the States, it goes really far up the ladder. But there is basically the entire second act of the film is him defeating the quote unquote main villain and then finding out there's someone above them. And it's usually like, you know, there's the local drug lords and then on top of them, there's the CIA and, and, you know, and it goes, but it, it is a film that in its silliness, it's aware of the role that institutions like the CIA and the government have in, you know, pushing drugs into black neighborhoods. And there's also a scene where they brief temporarily get rid of drugs in the neighborhood and it turns into a suburb. Yeah! yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is clearly like a totally different set. <laughs> it's not the same place. <laughs> Oh, well, Black Dynamite, you got rid of drugs in the community. <laughs> Everything is solved. All the problems are solved, which again, it happens halfway through the, fil the film, they clearly aren't. <laughs> I think, again, you know, divorcing it from Marvel, I think it's it's clearly poking fun out of Hollywood about the bad capitalist or the bad drug lord, and once the individual has been defeated, everything is solved, the narrative is solved, end of the third act, uh, they're gonna live happily together ever after. This film doesn't stop there. There's, this film is like, no, you, you kill one guy five, mi five more well, well, that resolution happens in like a montage really quickly. Yeah. The problem yeah. is sorted really quickly, which kind of be like, oh, there's like 20 minutes to go. What's going to happen? And like, oh, okay, these are the real, the, the CIA are the real villains. It's just Black Dynamite popping out of alley corners and beating up drug dealers for like, for like a two minute montage. Uh, oh, God. It's um, wonderful, wonderful. I think my last point is going to be that not only is this film uh, parodying or referencing black exploitation, but it's also also very referential of Hong Kong Kung Fu movies, whose history is surprisingly, and I just found it out recently, very intertwined with black exploitation through like actors like uh, Jim Kelly, who was you know a, a black martial arts expert who starred in black exploitation films like Black Belt Jones, but also famously starred side by side with Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon. But then I found out, and I found out most of his stuff through my partner. Uh, cheers to them, because <laughs> I, I wouldn't have known about it otherwise. That actually Hong Kong Kung Fu films were very popular with with black Americans in the seventh in the seventies and eighties. There is a reason yeah. why the Wu Tang Clan is called the Wu Tang Clan. Yeah, but it, and I found out it's because other than black exploitation, especially in the seventies, it was the only kind of film where you could see a non-white person as the hero or like a mainly non-white cast, even though they weren't necessarily black. So uh, that's an interesting history there, which ties it into stuff like 
you know, contemporary superhero cinema, and maybe its dependency on like the history of action movies and martial arts movies in general. So yeah, I, I you know, for such a silly film, <laughs> there is actually a lot of gold in here. If you're a Black Panther fan, uh, or if you're you know, if you want to get more into black cinema history, but you don't know what was made before 2018, perhaps, this film is a high recommend for me. Now, avoid these spoilers as much as we can. What's everyone's favorite quote? My favorite quote from this movie, and it's not a spoiler at all, and when you hear it, you will laugh your ass off. Black Dynamite declares with a venom, I threw that shit before I came in the room. Uh, <laughs> it's um after he has killed a would-be assassin in a donut costume. She says, how did you know it was him? Because donuts don't wear alligator shoes. You know what I hate about this guy pushing drugs to these kids? It's that these kids are orphans, and orphans don't have parents. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good. That's if that's everything, <laughs> I have one quick coda. There is a Black Dynamite animated series, and it is just as funny as the film. Oh my really? god. Really? Yes. Is, is Jay White involved? Yes, yes, he is still the voice of Black Dynamite. <laughs> Black Dynamite cartoon. That's wonderful. Uh, and that is a soldier into watching the film. I don't know what will. <laughs> All right, well, this movie is available in a lot of places. You can stream it on Freevee, ITV, We Do TV, Pluto TV, and Icon. You can rent it on Amazon, Apple TV+, Google Play, Chili. Microsoft, YouTube, and Sky Store, and you can buy it on Amazon, Apple TV+, Chili, Sky Store, and Microsoft. Wow. All right, let's move on to our next film. Uh, which is going to be? Oh, you'll find out after you've heard the trailer. Oh! We're leading the Black Mountain and Clyde. How are you going to outrun the police? We'd hide in plain sight. You ladies. I don't know yet. Don't worry, you're safe here. It's an honor to meet y'all. Y'all really gave us something to believe in. Queen and Slim is a 2019 movie directed by Melina Matsukas. While on a forgettable first date together in Ohio, a black man and a black woman are pulled over for a minor traffic infraction. The situation escalates, with sudden and tragic results when the man kills the police officer in self-defense. Terrified and fear for their lives, the man, a retail employee, and the woman, a criminal defense lawyer, are forced to go on the run. Uh, what do you guys think of this film? I think it has some problems, but ultimately it is a film that I do enjoy, even if it's not doing much new, politically speaking. Was it doing much new in 2019? I think it is a film that, if it had come out maybe a year later, might have really, really spoken to political moment. But it was just, I think, maybe by the passage of time, came out at a moment that wasn't as inflammatory. But maybe if it came out after the 2020 protests, a lot of his flaws would have probably, I don't know, stunk a bit more. more. pronounced. Yeah. But I think it's a film that starts off really strong. Like, the opening sequence is absolutely... Like the opening, like, 15 minutes are absolutely excellent. Then fails to keep that up for the entire duration. I think because this is a non-spoiler discussion, then we can talk about the good bits a fair amount without getting into some of the later problems. What I think makes a lot of the more out-there moments in this film work is because it seems crazy, and then you just remember, oh, that stuff actually happened. And not everything in this film happened to the same people, 
but every event can be traced back to some version of real life. Now, the one thing that I think definitely has never happened in the very specific way that's shown here is the protest scene, which we won't spoil, but that is specifically something that feels very on the nose and manufactured without it being something drawn from real life. Yeah, and... Not to spoil it, but yeah. that, I think that it for me is the obviously, part. this is a film moment. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure what point that scene is trying to make. I was saying with Charlie, it, felt, it yeah. feels unnecessary. Yeah. What, what do we feel about the direction of the film because I'm of two minds about it because the director Melina Matsukas she is clearly very talented behind the camera but she has a background in music video production right yes she directed Formation which is Mm -hmm. the Beyonce song in Lemonade Mm -hmm. and she directed the music video for We Found Love the Rihanna song Uh, she's very very successful music video director yeah and I think this film looks very slick, it looks very polished, but it does a quite a bit of the music video aesthetic, especially in the editing. There's often a lot of cutting between characters in scenes where I feel like they should be allowed to breathe. Oh, see, I uh, really like the way they cut. I think if you're talking yeah. about what I think you're talking about and when you have dialogue going on, but Oh, no, that's to... excellent. I, okay, because oh, no, I, lo- I love that. Yeah. I think that's um, like such great about the waterfront with the boy. Yeah, I really, yeah. really enjoy that. Oh, I think that's that's an excellent direction choice. No, I was thinking more in scenes like where the uncle's house... What's the name of the actress again? Jo- Jodie Turner-Smith. Yeah, because she hasn't been in much before this. Cause... No, this was her first leading role. Yeah. She, she'd yeah. been around for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, like both of them, they're like 30 when they make yeah. this film. This is her first like yeah. big role. And like, she's not had like a leading film role since, I don't think. She, she hasn't. She, she, hasn't. she, she feels was... weird. Because this movie did fairly well. She was in the Anne Boleyn series, where she was Black Anne Boleyn. Oh, yeah. Which no one no really one watched. No one saw. Mm-hmm. I don't quite know what the point of that was. I've not seen it, but I don't quite know what the point of that was. I'm all for it, but, like, what is it? Who is this for? The Hamilton crowd. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was very yeah. influenced by that. No, but uh, I think that, you know, Queen and Slim did quite well but it's still an indie film in the broader sense of the indie film so like for, for someone whose main role is in an indie film three years is not that big of a of a hiatus or a gap between big projects i don't feel sure but when your co-star is daniel kaluuya and he is continuing to having the career that he has and obviously this isn't his first yeah leading role but there is something quite egregious about the fact that he is such a star and is one of the biggest movie stars working right now particularly one of the biggest black movie stars and to be top billed with him Mm -hmm. you'd think that would give you you a bit more of a push i I don't know i I think she's wonderful in this film Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and you say it's mainly seen as an indie film. I think even more specifically, it is seen as a black film specifically. Yeah. Rather than something like Black Panther or Ghetto, which managed to have a huge amount of crossover success using the cachet of Marvel or of even Key and Peele. I think that this is pitched and received primarily by black audiences. Would you say that's right, Shabon? Yeah, I think that is right. It is It is a film, the discourse about it is still, it's still ongoing uh, in black American social media spaces. Uh, yeah, it feels very much like a black American film. Mm. Which is hilarious because both leads are British. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to be fair, Danny Kaluuya after Get Out has... People just forget that he's British and yeah. then you see him in interviews you're like, oh, wait, no, you were in Skins. Yeah, yeah, you were in Skins. <laughs> <laughs> On the subject of Get Out, I think that's an interesting case because 
I don't know if you guys saw it in the cinema when it came out. Yeah, I did. Uh, but I don't know. It was my experience, and I heard this from like basically anyone who saw it in the cinema in the like first two weeks of release. There were hardly any white people in the audience. A vast majority black audience. And then I think when the film truly exploded in the box office, everyone started watching it and talking about it. But upon release, it was mainly yeah being viewed by black black people. I felt like it was more of a mixed crowd when I saw it, but I didn't see it when it had just come out. I think it was a, at least a week into its run. Mm. Maybe it's that this kind of movie is becoming increasingly difficult to pitch. This is about a $20 million max budget movie, so I don't know. It definitely made its money back, but I don't really know how, especially in 2019, where everything is so dominated by IP, and it still is, but 2019, you know, just before we go into the pandemic, it felt like a real saturation point. Uh, we've had a conversation many times about how we feel like IP is, is strangling mid-budget filmmaking. Yeah, and studios making non-IP films. And the problem is that The Winter Soldier doesn't have to cost $100 million. There is no, there is no reason that movie needs to cut And because it has to cost so much for some reason, it has to make so much more and that means that it has to be more generic and so it's even ruining IP that could be an interesting interpretation a la Black Panther. The reason I chose this movie I think I should get into is that first of all I was really interested in the idea of reappropriation of contemporary mythology. So in the way Black Panther remythologizes the superhero to make it not just a black superhero but a superhero whose character is so rooted in his blackness, in this case specifically his Africanness, looking at something that is taking another American myth, Bonnie and Clyde, and finding a way to take the motifs of that story and that mythology and make it something that is specifically rooted in the black experience, to the point that it is name-checked in the film by uh, Uncle Earl, played by Bokeem Woodbine, who is also in Black Dynamite. Love you some Bokeem Woodbine, he I, gets everywhere! I love Bucky Woodbine, but he says you're the black Bonnie and Clyde. And yeah. so it's, the film is conscious of it and wants you to take that into consideration. And I wonder what the, and, and I wonder what your guys' reaction is to taking the mythology of white America and saying, no, this is our story too. I think it goes beyond Bonnie and Clyde. I think the road movie as a genre is such a distinctly, it's, it's so distinctly entrenched the American mythos. And early on in this film, I did something that I just love about good American road movies where I opened them up and I started tracing that. Because obviously, not, not being from America, I don't know, okay, where's Kentucky compared to Ohio and where's, you know, Louisiana? So I literally opened them up and traced their path. And like, it, there is something unique to that genre that this film achieves. Well, in terms of a narrative, I'd say it is more like Thelma and Louise than it is like Bonnie and Clyde. But Bonnie and Clyde, you have because A, they name check it, and B, the gender dynamics. Yeah, I like bringing up the road movie because the road movie also is a very white genre. Yeah. There are not... Yeah. The, I can't think of a black road movie. I can. Go on, Charlie. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Yes! With Ice Cube! With Ice Cube. That is the only black road movie I can think of. Yeah, but the great American novel On the Road is very white. Very, <laughs> it's incredibly is, white. It's again very yeah, yeah. white. So, I, Jack Kerouac <laughs> would not have got away with all that shit <laughs> if he hadn't been white. <laughs> Truly, that's the idea take a, a leaf from an entirely different thing from Lovecraft Country that references the actual Green Book. 
the idea yeah. that it was hard for black people to travel in America. You had to find safe places to go, so it was hard to make. Well, is Green Book a black movie? <laughs> so, we're black, so we're not counting that as a black road movie. It's an, nah. it's an Italian road movie. It's an Italian road movie. <laughs> no, but, yes. And Driving Miss Daisy, likewise. Driving <laughs> Miss Daisy is not a black road movie. What? I think the romanticizing of, of Bonnie and Clyde as, as a myth for white America, because they're assholes. Bonnie and Clyde were assholes, whereas Queen and Slim aren't. Yeah. They're just doing their best to not die. I think she has her moments. She has her moments of being a dick. She, <laughs> but that makes me like her. Yeah, I I like her. She has she has she has gumption. She has she has, she has, she has some steel to her. And I, and I also think it's significant the idea of a romance film between two dark-skinned dark black, black people yeah. lit perfectly. Mm-hmm. That's very meaningful for a lot of people too. And, and again, Black Panther. Everyone has a different skin tone, but everyone looks amazing. No one is washed out. Yeah. I think we have just got a lot better at lighting black faces and black bodies. Especially when you have a black person behind the camera. Definitely, yeah. definitely. Um, on that subject, I saw some people on reviews complaining about the explicit nature of the sex scene. But I think the problem with the sex scene is how it's intercut with a different scene. We've, we've said there yeah. is a pro- it's intercut yeah. with the protest scene, yeah. yeah. which, which uh, doesn't work for me. Yeah. But the sex scene itself, I think it's uh, explicitness is part of the point that you can see their whole body and their skins together. And on that note, their, their bodies look quite natural. Like, I think you can even see like some, like, like the textures on their skin. It, like, that is one of those scenes that is still like the rest of the film, very polished, but it still maintains some sort of sense of like tactility of yeah the skin and visuality and it allows the characters to appear extremely vulnerable and i really like that they deserve to be happy film could just be horny it's yeah. allowed you're allowed to be horny in film i don't think this film is particularly horny. <laughs> it's not horny the scene is horny they are horny for each other and very, their desires are very clearly expressed yeah i understand why people have a problem with this film and i knew that coming on to say that this is my pick for black panther is <laughs> this not my black panther <laughs> It, it's it's not a natural fit, yeah. but looking at it from the point of view of remythologization, specifically in the way that the black community all hear about them before they meet them and everyone has their opinion. I think that I actually love about this movie, it's something that all the best road movies do. Every side character that they meet feels so well realized mm-hmm. and so multidimensional. You get so many different perspectives on what they're doing and so many opinions on what they're imagined to be doing. When in fact, they're not particularly active characters. They're very reactive to the circumstances. And everyone is projecting whatever they want onto these characters. Mm-hmm. Unlike Bonnie and Clyde, who tried to cultivate their own celebrity and their own mythology, these people are sort of victims of their own thing. Which is something I kind of like about the central conceit of the film. Although, you know, it does get hammy later on. But, you know, the idea that is alluded to in the synopsis that they were videotaped killing the cop and the video goes viral on the subject of what you were saying about earlier about how difficult it is for black people to travel across the states like they are aided by their unwilling celebrity status because they encounter a lot of people who see them as heroes of the community and who aid them in their travel it's i think that central conceit as you know hammy as it gets and as on the nose as it gets i think it gives a very interesting framing to the road trip yeah, and I think that it's not a short movie, but I think it's very well paced. In that in that sense, you have this sort of urgency and this danger to every scene and this tension that is just hanging over them the whole time, which means that everything is moving. They are very rarely in one place for one time, and every time they are... 
they feel a new sort of danger, whether it's being recognised, whether it's being betrayed, whether it's not being able to leave. It's really urgent and it's really engaging, for me at least. In terms of further comparisons to Black Panther, I think the idea of black heroism, and this also brings in conversation with Black Dynamite as well, the ideas of who are the heroes of not just America, but specifically Black America, and how are they seen within that community and outside of that community. T'Challa is such a hero to his people that everyone is so excited to make him king. And Black Dynamite, everyone knows his name. You get the sense that over the days in which this film takes place, you have a black people who are in the Midwest thinking, oh, maybe they'll come into my gas station. Maybe they'll come into my store. Maybe they'll come to my hotel. You know, everyone who is on this trail is apprehending meeting these people. It feels like they're going into a very well-realised world, rather than having characters who don't exist until they're on screen. Yeah. Every character, and this is sort of done so well at the end, where you have a wonderful montage that I won't spoil, but you feel like when Queen and Slim leave them, these lives are ongoing and you can pretty well imagine how those lives are. I also feel like because we're so we're so viewing everything from their perspective and they are largely non-political characters. I mean, she has some very distinct political opinions because she works as an attorney and she knows how black people tend to be disadvantaged when it comes to matters like the death penalty. And she's the one who, I don't want to say escalates the situation with the cop, because I think, again, that scene at the beginning is very, very well framed where no blame is put on them whatsoever. It's all clearly the cop's fault. But, but she is the one who seems to be the more militant of the two about it, whereas, you know, Danica Louie has been more like, no, let's chill, let's just, you know, cooperate but which i think is also informed by the gender dynamic of how it's more often black men who are the receivers of police violence absolutely yeah but you know other than that you know they don't express any explicit political ideology even when a lot of it, of that is pushed onto them as they become political figures they kind of just want to you know do their own thing and chill. So a lot of the politics happens in the background. What's really interesting to me about the the opening of the film when they when they encounter that cop is it it immediately feels like because you know the premise of the movie you know that something bad is going to happen. But it's also so incredible to me that the figure the American policeman is so so intrinsically a dangerous villainous presence to black people. Like, the moment you see these two groups about to interact, you know this is only going to be bad. And then there's a almost horror movie moment where he goes back to the car, says, I'm going to run your license, and he just doesn't. He just doesn't. And he just waits out. So he's clearly looking to start shit. Feels like by choosing to portray functionally every single cop who's got an actual face and an, or actual lines throughout the film as, you know, the good guys, it's not, it's not to say that individual good cops don't exist, but... The selectiveness of that makes me feel like the, tr the film is trying to be safe. And it's trying to be like, oh, look, look, we don't need all cops. Look, we're going to give you so many examples of good guys and cops who are black that, you know, it's going to, you know, save us from accusations of being staunchly anti-police. And a lot of the more antagonistic police that is in the film is completely faceless. So they're almost shown as these, like, inhuman characters who... I, whereas I like that the first cop you see has his daughter's picture on the uh, laptop because... These guys are human, and he's also flawed, and he's also horrible, and he's, and he's also an arsehole. And it turns out they actually killed a black guy in the past, and that's why, you know, he's public enemy number one in the black community. With other cops, you don't get that. It's trying to be, to tiptoe around the issue. I too. disagree with that take. Mm. I think that the conclusion of the film, which is, if you are, you know, movie literate, you know where this is going 
by the end of the film, especially if you know the story of Bonnie and Clyde. It's almost a foregone conclusion that it's going to end in the way that it ends. What I think it does by showing the actions of good cops, or cops trying their best. What I think it does, it kind of condemns the system more so, because the system of American policing and militarized American policing is so powerfully malicious that even the individual acts of moral human beings aren't enough to stop it. There's when they meet that guy in the cowboy hat who, who helps them out, and then you know that he's a policeman. And, and, and he says, Lots of my colleagues step over the line. There it is. There's the system. You might be a good man, but you are you are aware that you are in a deeply corrupt system. So I get what you're saying that it kind of feels like a concession to moderation to show good cops. But I think the existence of good cops, while this ongoing danger for Queen and Slim, but also for black people as a whole, is still there, makes the system look even more corrupt, having because good, it doesn't matter. Having good cops who are cognizant the system is bad makes it worse. And also the fact that even if they are trying to make a difference within the force and within the system, it's not working. So I think that's why it worked for me, but mm -hmm. I, I totally understand that point of view. Before we move on, I was wondering if we could just quickly talk about the uncle character. Because I think Uncle a lot Earl. of people... Uncle Earl and the women that he lives with, again, speaks to... Including India Moore from Pose. Who is excellent. Just, just to look at. Just. But I... That gender dynamic is, again, expressed... Is, is again expressed there because you could read Uncle Earl as being like a stereotype of, of, of a violent black man because he, he does engage in violence. Like, he, he, he hits a woman. But there is this... Uh, and this, like, toxic idea of... of of black love and struggling through it. But also the understanding that Earl is in himself, the women know that he is a weak man. They understand that if he didn't have them, he would have nothing. And I think the fact that he is so framed by his experience as a veteran and as a traumatized black veteran, you could maybe draw a line between him and Killmonger, but I think that the fact that he- Who also expresses violence towards women throughout Black Panther. He does. I would argue that a lot of the women in Black Panther can can take him. Yeah. So, so that's okay. But I do think that the fact that you have those conversations in the film that, yeah, he is broken. Yeah, he is violent. But not because he's a violent person. It's because he's a veteran and a black veteran who has never been able to cope with what we imagine must have happened to him while he was in the military. Hell, even Black Dynamite. Is a veteran. Everyone, everyone is. We do see what happened to him. We do see what happened to him. I just think that the way that, that character is handled, even though he's funny and can veer into stereotype, the fact that there is this undercurrent of tragedy with his character makes him a very sympathetic and b more nuanced. Mm. And I just in general like the fact that the film shows so many black people, so many black characters. And some of them are antagonistic towards the protagonists. Or in the case of Uncle Earl, you know, he embodies a certain negative stereotype of the pimp. Not because I enjoy seeing negative black stereotypes on screen, but because I think this film counters that with enough good stereotypes that it actually makes blackness feel very heterogeneous. And um, it's so easy for films about black politics to revert to the trope of like, Every single black character in this film is going to be a saint and blameless, etc. No, because it's not about individuals being good. It's about we shouldn't execute people on the street regardless, even if there are, you know, like, you know, but that's... It that's, doesn't matter yeah. if he's a pimp. You yeah, shouldn't exactly. kill him. Exactly. So, but, but I guess which is what kind of my problem with the 
cop sees is that we see every single black, black cop being nice. I do think, though, that if they had met any bad cops, they wouldn't have made it to the end of the movie. That's true. So just for the movie to even exist, yeah. there needs to be the contrivances of the unlikely chance they meet a cop that they can either outsmart or get around. Or they could have killed more cops. But then again, they wouldn't because they're not... <laughs> yeah, because they're, because they're not actually Bonnie and Glass. Yeah, and they're not politically motivated characters either, which is why like, I think this film is, at its core, more of a love story than it is a political film. And I think it's a good love story. It is I a, think it's, it's a great yeah, love story. Yeah, I have no problem with the love story aspect of it. I think it's excellent. But because that's their perspective, that's what they care about. Um, as the main characters whose perspective we're forced into. So all the political stuff is so in the background that it ends up feeling underbaked or like feeling like you don't know what they're going with with certain scenes, whereas the love story, which is the true emotional core of the film, is incredibly successful. Okay, so availability. This movie is available to rent on Amazon, Google Play, Chile, Microsoft, YouTube, and Apple TV+, and you can buy it on all of those services plus Rakuten TV. All right, let's move on to our third and final alternate pick, Siobhan. Let me Are you ready? Let me open IMDb. Well, we're going to play the trailer first. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Le ciné Saloum, la meilleure des planques pour des mercenaires en cavale. Trois jours ici et tout le monde nous aura oublié. On se connaît. Mais j'ai gardé un, un très bon souvenir de cet endroit. Quelqu'un joue à nous la mettre. Qu'est-ce qui vous amène dans notre magnifique région du Sinsalou Next, we have Saloon, a 2021 film directed by Jean-Luc Herbelot. Three mercenaries, Shaka, Rafa, and Minui, extracting a drug lord, Felix, out of Guinea-Bissau, are forced to hide in the mystical region of Saloon, Senegal. Yeah, I think that pretty much covers the beginning of the film. <laughs> <laughs> so, we need to add, this is a Senegalese film. It's uh, French language. It's really interesting and really different to anything that I think we've covered on the show before. And I'm so glad we actually managed to get an African film in our Black Panther episode. <laughs> yeah. Charlie and I were so focused on the American politics of the film that we didn't I mean, think about it. I think it's fair to say that Black Panther is very much an American film yeah. set in, set in an Americanized idea of Africanness. Yeah. But this is an African film and this is the second time you've been on the show and second time you brought in an absolute banger. The, yeah, the the, the genre shift that happens throughout <laughs> this movie oh is my God. head spinning but so well done. It's pitched as a thrill horror thriller so we can mention that it does eventually veer into horror. And like a horror thriller western. Mm. Well, I think the middle section is kind of like an Agatha Christie <laughs> <laughs> mystery even though there's not, you know, a murder, but it does sort of have that vibe in like a plains camp, though. I have to, I have to really take my hat off to Herbert, who also wrote the movie. What about you, Francesco? What do, what, what, how do you feel about that about well, saloon? Just to lay my cards on the table, I much prefer the, the first half to the second half. That's I, fair. I, I, I like the film a lot before it veers into horror territory. And that's largely because, again, not the biggest horror fan, though I do appreciate horrors. But also, it's a fairly short film, and for 
great to have two such distinct halves. I don't think either of them has enough time to breathe. So I think this film with like 15 more minutes on either half would have been stellar. As it is right now, it leaves me wanting a bit more, which is a good thing, because I feel leaving you wanting more is better than a film <laughs> leaving you like, I, I should never have watched. I very rarely, especially when we're watching a bunch of films for this show, wish a film was longer. But this film is 84 minutes, basically. It feels like it needs a little more time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for the shifts to work, because it tries to cover a lot of ground very, very quickly. But not to get bogged down in stuff that I think doesn't work as well, I think that the characters are so well drawn out immediately. You have one character who is basically a wizard. Yeah! <laughs> and it's, it's basically a wizard! Or I suppose more of a witch doctor, given the context, yeah. but it's it's never gone into and it's just sort of accepted. I think that the, like we said, this is a Senegalese film. I haven't watched, I don't think any Senegalese cinema before. So I do wonder if part of it, including the genre shift, and similarly to Minwi having this relationship with the spiritual world, if there is a cultural shorthand which might make a lot of the twists and turns of the film feel more natural to me as someone who doesn't naturally have that cultural shorthand. Well, very small sample size again, but I have seen one Senegalese film from 2019, which I think a lot of people listening might have heard about because it's on Netflix, uh, Mati Diop's Atlantics. Curiously, that film also starts off as very grounded and realist and then there's a supernatural uh, shift in the middle. Have you seen it? Shabbat? I have not seen that yeah. film, but it, it does speak, I think, Cars on the Table, my PhD, is, a, is about West African and Caribbean spirituality. The uh, distinction that we find in Western cinema of not putting that into a film not about magic I don't think really exists in African yeah. cinema and I think what not to get into too big of a tangent about Atlantics but Mati Diop she's Franco-Senegalese but she's mainly based in France Atlantics is more based on Islamic mythology what mythology is it based on is it G anything Guinea-Bissau and like Benin that part of West Africa is still very much traditional West African religion yeah you have some Islamic references throughout the film but also they're speaking French throughout the film so, so it's very clearly got a mixed colonial history. Yeah. Both of the Islamic world and the European world. It's really interesting to see that play out. It's just part of the setting, the fact that all these countries on this continent have a history and a very complicated relationship with their colonizers. And of course the film opens with them taking the drug lord away from a, an active coup. Yeah, it's... I mean, that opening sequence is more what I thought the film would be going forward. It's much more of, you know, a gritty action film. And, and it never... I was never worried that it would be, you know, like The Expendables or Toxically masculine in a different way. When they get to Saloom, I'm on board with the shift that the movie takes them. Because, I know, one of my favourite subgenres is just people who are used to being in the thick of some sort of action, whether that's personal, whether that's professional, whether it's violent, being forced to stay still and be peaceful, and how they're so ill at ease with that. And I do really like that side of it. Like I said, the twist into horror at the end, it's just, again, it maybe if I understood more of the native mythology of Senegal, I'd be more on board because I understand the relationship between what's going on with the characters and the setting and then with the, the sort of heightened magical realism. But yeah, but there are terms used that in all fairness, if I hadn't been studying this for three years, I would have been like, what's that? What does that mean? What is this? 
I don't think, you know, like you, you need to get into the whole mythology it's referencing in order to be able to enjoy the film as a narrative. I do think that while you have those moments early in the film where everything seems to be standing very still, but there is clearly a tension building up uh, in the background, there is very much a sense that the history of this place and the history of these characters, which evolves with a surprising twist at the midway point, that we're not going to spoil, but it's incredible, but it's so rooted in the space it's almost like buried in the land and when the supernatural shift happens it's catalyst it's tantamount to unburying hidden histories and unburying historical tragedies and unburying trauma which you know lets out this unspeakable horror so I, I think with that reading you don't need to know exactly what the unspeakable horror is referring it could be a completely fantasy made up thing for all yeah, I it care. feels like the unspeakable horror is that trauma made manifest <laughs> yeah I, I really like it. I also love the character design of the hyenas, which is the name of this mercenary group, I like that. I kind of like their style. <laughs> <And> just, <laughs> They're really stylish. And like they rock up to this place, and it's not like it's a heightened world where everyone has their own very heightened look. No, these guys look crazy. <laughs> yeah, they're famous. <laughs> They're famous mercenaries. Famous magic mercenaries. <laughs> Is it Rafa who's got like his entire beard and, and hair just dyed? Not even blonde, just yellow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Minwi is the one with the white dreadlocks. Yeah. Who looks like a Valarian. And uh, well, Chaka, who's the you know central character of the story. Stellar performance by Young Gil there. I mean, I was I was I was just mitomized performance throughout. He's, he's the got, most normal looking, but, but he's has... got these red gloves that are so distinct. Yeah. Almost like a I don't know. I don't want to call it it's a Black Panther episode I'm gonna call it a superhero costume because it's like there is such a distinctive characteristic in his outfit that yeah just sets him apart from everyone else but also he has this sort of otherworldly swagger yes and like especially when he's wearing his sunglasses he just looks cool this is an episode full of cool characters yeah, who look cool yeah yeah they're, they're wearing their coolness on their sleeves yeah one thing that even though the hyenas are very well drawn as characters I did find myself getting quite confused just because they're like three bold black men with glasses who all dress very similarly and don't have a huge amount of character development. I found it quite difficult to... Because that's the thing, they come developed already. They, they, they don't, especially with... Because the only one who really gets an arc is Shaka, because he's very yeah. much intent on doing this thing. And that's, you know, revealed of why he's forced them to... Come here, yeah. <laughs> all places. But I'm talking about the characters who are in the uh, in the village and in the cabins. What would you call it? It's a camp, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it's a camp. Of the characters who are in this sort of holiday camp. There are two characters, I think they're musicians, who feel like, okay, I get the handle on who they are, but not because they do a great deal. It makes them distinct just because they have very distinct looks. Likewise, there is a deaf character, and I think... Our. Yeah. Our, our is wonderful, and she has a really unique energy that she brings to the film that just sort of makes everything just a bit more chaotic. And I really... Yeah, she's very impish. There are so many, like, sign language insult battles in this film. <laughs> I think again, I have never seen before. <laughs> Which I, I, I do really like. Not, not every character has that, and I think that part of the... Maybe it's because I was viewing it a bit like a murder mystery <laughs> in, in, in the middle, but... sketched characters. It, exactly, and, like, the other three male characters just all sort of blend together. I think part of the problem is that I d definitely don't speak fluent French, but I even more so don't speak Senegalese French. So if I was listening more to the voices of the characters rather than reading their lines via subtitle, I might be able to distinguish them a tiny bit more. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there might be, again, there might be types that we just don't have the cultural reference for. Yeah, yeah which is, you know, fine, and it's something that you have to deal with when you're watching foreign films, particularly those from a country that you've not seen a lot of films from. But I just think in terms of character drawing, I think that's a tiny bit of a weak spot. Knowing this was going to be in the Black Panther episode, and I've read the synopsis where these guys go into the mystical region of Saloom, I was expecting more of a high fantasy, like Wakanda vibe. And maybe it's because this film doesn't have Black Panther budget, but maybe it's just because that's not what the film is going for at all. Like Saloom is a bunch of barracks spread out in a fairly barren landscape. And I think that actually works in favor of the film because the mystical, magical elements are not supposed to be evident until they come out. So the fact that this place looks so uh, sterile and unremarkable, which is not to the detriment of the cinematography of the film, which I think is, is excellent, but the fact that this place looks so anonymous, it doesn't look quite mystical at all, but then you start seeing like little bits of like weird things like, oh, why do the villagers have burnt ears? Or why do they... There's so many like small hints at a broader supernatural setting that I don't need it to be Wakanda or Lord of the Rings or What's something interesting like is that. that because of the nature of the film, until the reveal, the film is sort of lacking an antagonistic presence. And then once it has it, even besides the magical stuff, it's so monstrous. The villain of the film is such a monster. It's narratively, it's a, it's different to what we're used to. Uh, you touched on the cinematography before. I just want to shout out the cinematographer Gregory Carandi. I think what 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 drew me to Saloon was the understanding that that genre shift was going to happen because I'd, I'd, I'd seen a trailer for it and I was like absolutely let's let, let's see how, how how this goes I feel like this there is a, a wave from the mid 2010s coming up now where African cinema is finally starting to creep its way into into visibility and that's why I wanted to bring a film like like Saloon to the table because it's an African continent with like two billion people there are great filmmakers waiting to have their moment to, to show what they can do in a similar way that you, we are having this great generation of black Black American filmmakers and Black American stars, you do feel like we are at a real turning point where we are getting more voices and more faces and more different perspectives in cinema. And it's, as a film fan and as an international film fan, I'm very excited about it. Yeah, and I, and I do think that if people are more interested in watching African cinema, Senegal is a great place to start because among African countries, it's one of the ones with the longest history of production. And I don't know too many other national cinemas in Africa, but Senegal is definitely a great untapped. I would love just... if in the same way that we are now starting to understand the cinematic language of, of South Korea, if people in like 10 years time, as they did with the Korean movie, start to understand the cinematic languages of, of different African nations. Yeah, I'd be also be very interested because end of November we are getting the new BFI um, sight and sound list. And in the last one, the only, I, I'm pretty sure the only sub-Saharan African film was Tukibuki. I'd be interested to see if that changes in terms of the number of films from that region. I'd be very interested to see that. The other thing, just going to the point of international cinema and understanding other perspectives, like I feel like also, film fans specifically, I think that maybe the average person has further to go in the, in the least condescending way, but I think there is something significant about the era we're living in. For example, I know you didn't see it in the cinema, but what was the most fun film you saw in a cinema this year? 
Triple R. Triple R. Yeah. And and you've seen it, but you didn't see it in the cinema. Oh my God! R R R. That the Tollywood. Good it's, Lord. it's 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 wonderful. And the the reason I bring that up is that I feel like we're positioned more so than before to just open our eyes and open our hearts to cinema. And I you know say film fans rather than the average person, but you know Parasite won the Oscar for Best Picture. <laughs> yeah. I still can't really believe that happened. That's amazing. Also, like, you know, it's easy to shit on the digital era and the streaming era for how it turned film consumerism to a new level, but it also made so many films available that wouldn't have been otherwise. Absolutely. Like, you know, watching like Tukibuki... Like in, yeah, Yeah, exactly. Like, watching Tukibuki in the 70s must, must have been so much harder than watching Saloon nowadays, which uh, that is, it's on Amazon. Uh, I don't want to show for Amazon. <laughs> uh, but, w- on streaming services. Yeah. W- watching Tukibuki in the 70s must have been so much harder than watching Saloon nowadays that it's on streaming services services. So it is truly a great era for world cinema, but we need to support it. We can't just go to the cinema and only watch Marvel movies. Not to shit too much on Marvel movies, but <laughs> if that's the only thing that people watch, that's the only thing that studios are gonna invest in in the future. I mean, just to that point, I've seen you know people on Twitter or other social media platforms where people are saying, oh, I didn't like Thor Love and Thunder. I have to wait ages for another Marvel movie. It's like, oh, hey, you could watch other films. Watch other films. Watch other films. Good. Like we used to say to people who only reference Harry Potter, read another book. Another book, watch another film. Uh. It's, it's just nonsense, and we're like living in. It's very strange, and I think we're living in a very bleak time for cinema, but a very exciting time for film. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. And on that note, should we wrap up? Yeah. Saloon is available to stream on Shudder. And that's it for now in the UK. But Shudder's great. Shudder's great. It's, I got Shudder. It's a great medium for a lot of up and coming horror filmmakers. And yeah, so to finish off, formally. This was the double bill question, but we've now changed it because people were answering it as if they had to watch them literally as a double bill consecutively. (laughs) And all their answers were about um, the amount of time it would take. But the question now is, if Black Panther is the main course, what film is your dessert? It's Black Dynamite. (laughs) (laughs) If you take the meaning of dessert literally. So uh, I think, so with these three picks, I would say if you like Black Panther and Marvel cinema because you're into like fun action-packed, heroic, entertaining films that definitely Black Dynamite is your pick. Queen and Slim, we did mention it earlier, but I think it's very important to note that it, it was made a year after Black Panther. It comes from a very similar era. So if you're particularly interested in Black American cinema of that period of the late 2010s, and where we were at before, everything went even more to shit in the past couple of years. You know, it's something you can watch back to back. Whereas Saloon, I think there's you know little to be said that we haven't said before, but you know, African cinema and, and it's, it's it's the untapped treasure that is good African cinema is akin to the nation of Wakanda in, in there. It's so rich and so flourishing, but white people don't know it exists. Wait, so, so are you saying you want to mine the resources of Africa and bring them to the West? Well, by way of, of paying them for, for their films and, and then continue making we've them. We've caught Francesco sure. on, we've caught you, we've caught him live. You've got You're him a cultural live. colonizer. <laughs> Gotta kidnap all the directors and make them make white movies for us. <laughs> Nothing but Marvel films. <laughs> uh. For me, the answer is Saloon. Not because I don't love the other ones. I, I think these are three very varied and interesting picks to talk about in conversation with Black Panther. But I do think that the version of Africa that Black Panther paints is an extremely American version. I think that's why it's very prescient for its target demographic. But I think if you want to see a film that is about Africa 
in Africa by Africans, specifically Senegalese artists, I have to go with Saloum. And I think also it's of the three we've picked, it's my joint favourite with Black Dynamite. My least favourite is the one I picked, even though I don't regret picking it. No, it was a good pick for the episode. If I were to rewatch any films, I'd probably... Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it's a, it's a yeah. weird one to rewatch, especially it's the longest of the three. Yeah, just in general, like, black cinema, black creators, black actors, like, all the, these three films are Black over- podcast guests. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and no black podcast hosts. <laughs> Uh, yet uh, until until we fire Charlie and hire Shabani in his place uh, it's like, not going to happen his, his job is safe <laughs> you're too busy <laughs> with another podcast but yeah no, like all the films that we picked are overwhelmingly black so if you just want to see more black people on screen you know start from these three and then go on there's so much to be seen or just more black people generally who among us we're anyway. more fun <laughs> goodness uh, all right, well, to wrap up, thank you so much, Siobhan, for coming on. Do you have anything you want to plug? Do you want to share your social media? As before, my social media continues to be at the Liberal Cynic for myself. For our, my tabletop games, it's at Six Plains Games. We have Demonology Podcast. And speaking of black creatives, we are doing Waltz in New Orleans again at the Cambridge Arts Festival at the end of the month. That's wonderful. And yeah. this will come out in time for that. It will, yes. Yeah, That's and all of that is going to be in the description, so... Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, as always, to our esteemed producer, Jade. Thank you to Molecule for our artwork. Thank you, Francesco. Thank you, Charlie. And thank you for listening. <laughs>